Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Vanessa Brown Calder, and I'm a policy analyst here at Cato. Today we are discussing the topic, should urban areas grow up or grow out to keep housing affordable? As most in our audience know, climbing housing costs are a challenge that policymakers continue to grapple with. Attempts to contain the effects of growing housing prices have been met with initiatives to subsidize low-income tenants, tax and spend to build affordable housing for a few, or require developers to set aside affordable units in exchange for developer approvals or developer subsidies. These initiatives target housing affordability on the margin and assist the handful who are able to capture program benefits. They do not, however, produce the seismic shifts necessary to improve housing affordability for all tenants or all homeowners, wherever they fall on the income distribution and wherever they decide to locate. As a result, housing prices continue to climb in many American urban areas, pushing low-income and even middle-income people out and limiting vocational choices. Our panel today is going to discuss how to most effectively respond to these pressures. That is, should urban areas respond to the housing affordability question by growing up, and building more and higher density with more apartments and condominiums at the urban core? Or is it more effective to grow out, that is, build single-family homes on the urban fringe? Should cities do both? Or is there a role for government incentives at all? This topic is especially relevant as we await likely major strategic changes to the Housing and Urban Development Department, or HUD, under a new administration. We have a very interesting panel today where I believe each of the possible perspectives on this topic will be represented. So let me introduce you to our presenters. We're gonna start with Emily Hamilton. Emily is the policy research manager for the state and local policy project at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Emily is an alumna of the Mercatus Center's master's fellowship. After completing her master's, she worked in commercial real estate market research before returning to the Mercatus Center as an associate director of state outreach. Garrett Knapp will be next. Garrett is professor of urban studies and planning, executive director of the National Center for Smart Growth Research and Education, and associate dean for research and creative activity in the School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation at the University of Maryland. Knapp earned his BS from Willamette University, his MA and PhD from the University of Oregon, <laughs> and received postdoctoral training at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, all in economics. Randall O'Toole will conclude. Randall is the Cato Institute Senior Fellow working on urban growth, public land, and transportation issues. An Oregon native, O'Toole was educated in forestry at Oregon State University and in economics at the University of Oregon. Most recently, he wrote the policy analysis paper, The New Feudalism, Why States Must Repeal Growth Management Laws. Each panelist will present, beginning with Emily, and their presentations will be followed by a question and answer period from the audience, so please hold your questions until the end. Thank you, and Emily. Thanks, Vanessa, and thank you to the Cato Institute for hosting this discussion today. Housing affordability is a really critical public policy issue, so I'm really looking forward to our discussion. And while Garrett, Randall, and I may have some disagreements about how best to achieve housing affordability, we all recognize that it's a crucial issue, and that's why we're here today. 
The question framing today's discussion is should cities grow up or out to make housing more affordable? And my answer is both, because we have clear evidence that both traditional zoning regulations that prevent cities from growing up and newer smart growth style regulations that prevent cities from growing out both make housing more expensive. Current housing policy causes poor people to stay poor. If we consider the example of a relatively low-skilled worker like a server in a restaurant, she could make more money if she lives in a high-income, high-productivity city rather than a low-income, low-productivity city, but current housing policy makes it difficult for her to make this transition. First, I'm going to discuss some of the research on the evidence of the importance of housing affordability, and then I'll turn to a discussion on the specific regulations that prevent housing from being affordable where it's needed most. The first piece of research that I'll talk about is by the economists Chang Tai She and Enrico Moretti, and they look at state income convergence across time. And state income convergence, when it's happening, means that low-income states are increasing per capita incomes at a faster rate than high-income states. So as all states are becoming wealthier, lower-income states are becoming wealthier faster. And looking at the chart on the left, they find that from 1940 to 1960, there was a very significant and strong inverse correlation between income per capita and annual income growth rates. So people were rapidly moving from low-income states to higher-income states. If we look at the chart, people were moving from Mississippi at the top left to Delaware at the bottom right in pursuit of higher income and better jobs. Uh, and this movement benefits people uh, on both sides. So obviously the people who are moving toward better jobs are doing so to make themselves better off. But as labor is becoming scarcer in lower income states, wages there rise. So it benefits people on both sides of the movement. But they find that after 1980, this movement broke down. Uh, we can see from 1990 to 2010 on the left, on the right, the red line is much flatter and the data points are much more scattered. And they attribute the decline in state income convergence to land use regulations making housing more expensive in the most productive cities. The second piece of research I want to discuss is by Peter Ganong and Daniel Schoeg. And they look at how would economic output change if the highest productivity cities allowed more housing to be built. So they look at the three most productive cities in the US. That's San Francisco, San Jose, and New York City. And in all three of these cities, it's very difficult to build new housing. So when demand for housing increases, we see housing prices rising rather than this housing supply increasing as well. So they look at what would happen if those three cities lowered the burden of their land use regulation down to the median American city. So not a completely free market, but what would happen if we allowed some additional people to move to these very productive cities? And they find that economic output would increase by $1.4 trillion, which is a really astonishing jump in output. And of course, much of this output would go to the people who are able to make that move and are now able to afford housing in these very productive cities, but it would also be shared with all of us. 
as more people are able to move to, say, San Francisco to pursue jobs in software, the innovations they create will benefit all of us, and they'll allow businesses around the world to do their jobs better. I'll turn now to the regulations that are preventing affordable housing from being constructed. And I'll start by talking about traditional land use regulations. These include minimum lot sizes, maximum density rules, setback requirements that require a certain distance between a building and a property line, and parking regulations. This is an image of Tenley Town uh, here in DC, right off the red line and near American University. And the land in Tenley Town is very valuable. So in a freer market, we would expect to see a more intense use of this land with perhaps high-rise housing or high-rise office spaces. But instead, we see this relatively sparse development of single-family homes because that's what's allowed. How many of you in the audience are renters? I'm a renter too, and it's easy to see how these regulations make us worse off by restricting the supply of housing, uh, requiring us to pay more in rent each month. And how many of you are homeowners? These regulations can hurt you too. Say you own a home in Tenley Town on a corner lot, but you'd like to sell your home. And the person willing to pay the most for your home could be a developer who'd like to knock the home down and build, say, a small apartment building that can house more people. Under current zoning rules, you're prevented from making this exchange. So zoning transfers property rights from the landowner to the political process. Since the 1970s, a newer type of land use regulation has become much more common in the US, and it's known as smart growth regulation or growth management laws. This image is of the outskirts of Portland that has the most famous urban growth boundary in the US. And you can see the sharp demarcation between land inside the boundary that's allowed to be built on and land outside the boundary that's protected as agricultural or open space. Several studies have been done on Portland looking at the effects of this urban growth boundary. And they find that, unsurprisingly, land inside the boundary that's allowed to be put to a higher value use sells for more than land outside the boundary. Uh, and these, these higher land costs are then capitalized into housing prices and rental rates. So we know that there's clear evidence that both traditional land use regulations and smart growth rules make housing more expensive. But we don't know a lot about specifically which rules are uh, restricting the supply of housing. A lot of the research on the relationship between housing regulations and housing prices takes the aggregate level of land use regulations rather than looking at the specific breakdown of rules. We do know that these rules interact with one another. So it's not the case that within Portland's urban growth boundary, developers can build whatever they think the market wants, but rather the uh, suburban style development that we see here is what's allowed. We also know that if some cities want to increase their housing supply, they have no option but to grow up. If we look at Los Angeles as an example, we see that the LA area is completely built out from the Santa Monica Mountains to the north to Camp Pendleton military base in the south, and from the Pacific Ocean to San Bernardino on the east. East of San Bernardino is Big Bear Mountain Ski Resort, so that's obviously not land that's well suited to new development. And people can live east of that mountain range, 
But at that point, they're in an entirely different labor market, and they're not getting the benefits of LA's uh, great economy and high potential jobs. In Randall's uh, research that he'll discuss in much greater uh, depth momentarily, he argues that uh, zoning doesn't really change outcomes from what we would see in a freer market. And in many cases, that's true. So if a developer wants to build a new suburban development at the outskirts of a city, and he wants to build single family homes on quarter acre minimum lots, that's often the designation that uh, housing authorities will provide the developer. So they'll say, this area is zoned for single family homes on quarter acre lots, not changing the market outcome. The problem is that zoning freezes housing supply at a certain level. We can look at this image of the Tribeca neighborhood in New York, and we see here the rendering for a new building next to uh, older buildings that look very similar. And that's because developers are only allowed to build the same type of structure that was built centuries ago in the same location. This land is incredibly valuable, so in a freer market, we would see developers taking advantage of the opportunity to provide housing for many more people who want to take advantage of the many opportunities that New York City offers. But instead, supply is frozen at the level determined many, many years ago. We can think of zoning rules as acting somewhat like a price cap. In 1950, a gallon of gas cost 18 cents. If policymakers had capped gas prices at that level, they wouldn't have had any immediate outcome on uh, the effects of what we would see under a free market. But we all know it would be disastrous if gas had been priced capped at 18 cents for the past 70 years. But why is the housing market any different? Proponents of uh, maintaining neighborhoods that are dedicated to single-family homes often argue that there's plenty of open space in this country. So if people want to go build new uh, high-rise housing or office buildings, they should go do that somewhere that's not already protected for single-family homes. And of course, they're correct. There's plenty of space to do that. But when we look at a picture of a skyscraper in the middle of a field, we know that it's ridiculous and this would never happen. The benefit to having a skyscraper is that it allows many people to cluster in a center of productivity where opportunities are located. So we wouldn't see a skyscraper in the middle of nowhere because there's no benefit to doing that. For many reasons, certain cities are centers of economic productivity. They're where opportunities are located and that will continue to be the case. These are the areas where we need to see cities growing both up and out in order to facilitate the income mobility and increased economic output that's possible when people are able to congregate in these centers of opportunity. Thank you. So thank you. Um, I knew Emily was going to be a tough act to follow. Uh, she sent her slides ahead of time and I said, oh my God, I don't have time to do a slideshow better than this, so I'll just, I'll just go without slides. Uh, the very cool thing I thought about her presentation is when I saw the slides, and there were almost no words on many of the slides, as I recall, I couldn't see as I was talking here. But I knew, I knew what she was going to say about every, almost every one of those slides. And that's a sign of a good PowerPoint, right, and the, when the slides and the images speak for itself. So I, I really want to commend Emily on a terrific PowerPoint. 
So uh, I do want to thank uh, the Cato Institute and, and Randall for in, uh, inviting me here. Um, I teach in the Department of Urban, uh, in the Program of Urban Studies and Planning at the University of Maryland, and we assign uh, Randall's stuff uh, for them to read. Not that we agree with all of it, of course, uh, but we think it's very important for people to get, uh, uh, to get a, a variety of points of view, and we think his voice is important to consider uh, as, as practicing planners. Uh, and as I told Randall earlier, um, I want to publicly invite him to come to the National Center for Smart Growth. I think we could have a terrific conversation uh, there about many of these issues as well. As well. So I want, also uh, want to say thanks for inviting me to the Hayek, Frederick Hayek Room. Uh, as somebody with three degrees in economics, it's really terrific to be in a room uh, after such a, a prominent figure in my discipline. So that, that's terrific as well. So um, without a PowerPoint, uh, I'm going to my my talk really is going to address three questions. Uh, the first is, uh, do we have a, a housing affordability problem? Uh, the second is, what does this White House um, white paper say? Uh, because I don't know if that prompted this conversation, but, but it, it's certainly in the air, I think. Uh, and then I want to entertain uh, Randall's question about should we grow up or should we grow out? So first, a couple of uh, points, really, just a, a smattering of points about housing affordability. Uh, there's a couple of really terrific uh, reports from the Kennedy Center, uh, the Joint Center at the Kennedy Center, about rental housing and rental housing in international com comparative perspective. So just a couple of factoids, right? First of all, we know there's been a significant decline in home ownership over recent years, uh, which resulted in a significant growth of renters of all ages, uh, all incomes and all family sizes, but, but predominantly uh, young, single, and low-income folks. Uh, the share of renters, uh, renters make up largely Gen Xers and, and baby boomers, still make up the largest share of renters, uh, where home ownership has really declined, uh, and the demographic trends pretend more significant growth in these particular demographic groups in the, in the rental population. The growth in the rental stock, uh, though accelerating, isn't keeping pace with demand, causing sharp drops in vacancy and rising housing costs uh, and, and rental cost burdens. Most of the rental housing in central cities uh, most of the rental housing is located in central cities, and most of the home ownership housing is located in the suburbs, uh, and much of the rental housing really is in very poor quality. The growth in rent continues to outpace growth in incomes, leading to a rising number of cost-burdened households, and about a third of those cost-burdened households are families with children. Compared with public housing, LIHTC, or low-income tax credit housing and voucher housing units tend to be concentrated to be less concentrated, sorry, in high poverty and high minority areas. Uh, on the international front, looking at this international comparison, uh, work by uh, Marco Carlino, uh, Michael Carlino, um, who says, who finds that the median share of income spent on housing uh, for the U.S. Uh, was about 31%, higher than for every developed country in his study except Spain, although the medians for the U.K. and Belgium were nearly as high. And more than 28% of all cash renters in the US paid more than 50% of their total incomes for housing, the highest in the developed world. So we got a problem. Right? Housing is unaffordable. Uh, and what's the cause? Well, you don't have to be a libertarian, I don't think, to understand that regulations are a contributing cause of housing price inflation. Uh, zoning, adequate public facilities ordinance, urban growth boundaries, building codes, you name it. Uh, these are all regulations, most of which are adopted by local governments that result in higher housing prices. Um, I think everyone on the panel certainly I think, would agree to that, and I think actually most people recognize that. Uh, the caveat, however, uh, is that regs have both costs and benefits. Uh, certainly, rising housing prices are one of the costs uh, of regulations, but there are benefits. Uh, we do know that we see higher quality neighborhoods. 
Uh, we do know that, that people desire them as expressed through the political process at the local level. So regulations do have both costs and benefits. Uh, and second, there's tremendous regional variability. Uh, there are places where you can impose all kinds of regulation, and if there isn't sufficient demand, there's not going to be an increase in housing prices. So it has to be a constraint on housing prices, sorry, a constraint on development, uh, combined with uh, strong demand for housing. So we got a problem, uh, and I would concede that regulations are a big part of that problem. So turning to this uh, recently released uh, White House working paper, or white paper, it's kind of released at an odd time, I have to confess, at the end of the administration. Uh, it's a bit shallow, I would argue, if you, if you take a look at it. Uh, and by the way, I was unable to access it this morning. I don't know if anyone tried, but uh, the PDF is somehow messed up. Uh, so you can't get to it uh, anymore. Uh, so fortunately, uh, Debbie Bassett of the Home Builders was, was willing to share a, a, a review of theirs for me. So I was able to review uh, Debbie's piece uh, in, in reviewing some of what's in this paper. So if you look at that toolkit and you look what's in it, Okay, uh, roughly 10, 11, maybe 12 things in it. So the first is established by right uh, development. The second is tax vacant land or donate the vacant land to not-for-profits. The third is streamline or shorten building permitting processes and timelines. The fourth is eliminate off-street parking requirements. The fifth is enact high-density multifamily zoning. The sixth is allow accessory development un dwelling units. The seventh is establish density bonuses. The eighth is employ inclusionary zoning. The ninth is establish development tax or value capture incentives. And the tenth is use property tax abatements. There is a reference, although not one of the principal strategies, uh, to inc an increasing state role in land use regulation. Uh, and while there's no mention of the affirmatively furthering fair housing rules, there's clearly allusion to it. Um, if you look at not only the white paper, but you look at the National Home Builders Association's response to it, you'll find remarkable concurrence, I think. Uh, certainly the paper by the home builders does its grousing and, and complaining about some of the things in here. But overly, I think in general, uh, it's not that antagonistic, except it doesn't like, uh, don't like the inclusionary zoning piece. And there's a sort of mixed views about uh, the state intervention. And the, the beef with the inclusionary zoning is that it may further some social goals, but it doesn't really further the housing goals. So, returning now to the question, right, should we build up or build out to, to promote affordable housing? Uh, and here I agree with Emily, but I really want to argue it's the wrong question. Right? The question is how do we build more affordable housing? Right? Uh, we need affordable, more affordable housing in the center of the city. We need more affordable housing in the periphery of the city. And the White House paper, I think, offers some good ideas for moving in that direction. Unfortunately, I think the question uh, wants to make this about urban growth containment but I don't think really that's, that's the problem. Yes, I'll concede, ceteris paris, and my dissertation was about Portland's urban growth boundary, uh, that if you holding everything constant, you, you constrain the supply of land, uh, that places upward pressure on housing prices. Right? But right, is containment right, of the type that Portland employs at the metropolitan level really the dominant form of regulatory of land and housing regulations and the source of our affordable housing problem? And I don't think so. Right. The most predominant tool is really zoning of various forms. Use zoning, which I think most people would agree results in the excess separation of uses. Density zoning, which places constraints on the density of development or minimum lot sizes, largely the same thing. Fiscal zoning, which encourages local governments to, to keep out housing and, and try to encourage more uh, rateables, uh, more development that, that pr provides uh, fiscal benefits. Adequate public facilities ordinance, which are trying to uh, 
prevent public services from getting congested, and long, lengthy approval processes. So to me, those are the real uh, issues, the real problems with land use regulation. Does anyone in the room really think right, that if you eliminated land use regulations, that um, our cities would be less dense? Right? I don't think so. Right? I mean, if you think about the overall net impact, and this is an issue I think it was raising, of land use regulations is to make our metropolitan areas less dense than they otherwise would be. So what do we do? So first of all, a couple of non-answers, right? Well, one non-answer is to do nothing. I mean, we've got an affordable housing crisis, if you will. Affordable housing has risen to the fore, I think, in policy discussions on both the left and the right. Um, the other answer I don't find useful is to simply say we should deregulate, right? We should deregulate. Okay, well, where is the political constituency for that? And are you going to try to convince local governments across the United States to deregulate? I mean, that's like expecting uh, Mitt Romney to sit down and have dinner with Donald Trump. Oh, wait, that is going to happen. <laughs> I still consider it unlikely uh, that you're going to have success trying to get local governments to, to sort of flat out deregulate. So what are some better answers? First, I think it is possible to have some better state oversight of local land use regulations to assure that some of the ideas about mitigating the impacts of land use regulations uh, are, are, are diminished. I think there's nothing wrong with federal incentives and federal to tools trying to encourage uh, local governments to relax, uh, the, to, to permit the de development of affordable housing. And finally, um, I think that we should do everything we can to try to increase the supply of affordable housing in high opportunity areas. Um, one of the major problems we have, I think, in this country is that a consequence of our land use regulations is that, is that it channels poor people uh, into places of very low opportunity uh, and really diminishes their, their chances uh, for, for social uh, advancement. So in that sense, I'm going to perhaps agree with Randall that uh, we need to grow out uh, in the sense that we need to provide more affordable housing in high opportunity areas and those high opportunity areas tend to be more in the suburbs than in the central cities. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. Um, thank you, Garrett and Emily. Uh, I don't agree with everything they said, but I do find some areas of agreement. I started working on this issue several years ago, and I wrote this book, American Nightmare. And as I was writing the book, it occurred to me that land use regulation was a form of economic warfare being waged by urban elites against the working class. And it's kind of gratifying that somebody was able to make their political campaign out of that issue. I just hope we can see some good results from it. Uh, as I was continuing work, I was realizing that a lot of these issues are thought of in terms of property rights. And uh, we live in a, a world in which we used to have feudalism, and we suppose, supposedly don't have it anymore. So I decided to make a map of worldwide property rights regimes. And the, this color that's supposed to be yellow is really designates countries that are feudalistic. There are countries in which government or a few oligarchs own virtually all the land, and it's very hard for individuals to own land and to obtain the benefits of land ownership. The red areas are what I call the new feudalism, where there's private land, but government regulates the land so strictly that you really can't do anything with the land without the government's permission or the government's mandates. Only in the green areas do we have true property rights, 
where you can own land and do what you want with your land as long as you're not doing too much damage to your neighbors. So the green areas basically are the central United States and a, a couple other countries around the world, and I'm not even sure about some of those uh, northeastern European countries. Uh, I would argue that it's the red areas that are the problems that cause housing affordability problems. We talk about the housing affordability crisis, but the crisis is found mainly in cities in the red areas. Now, I want to distinguish between housing affordability and affordable housing. Affordable housing is housing that's built or subsidized by the government for low-income people. Housing affordability is a measure of the affordability of housing for everybody. And the basic measure of that, or one of the basic measures, is the median income divided by the median, uh, excuse me, the median value of home, homes divided by the median family income. So it's a value to income ratio. Uh, 50 years ago, the value to income ratio in cities all across the country was about two. In other words, a house was about twice as expensive, the median home was about twice as expensive as the median family income. If you earn more than the median family income, you bought yourself more than a median home. If you earn less than a median family income, you bought less than a median family home. Since then, uh, the value to income ratios have grown really high in some cities, such as Los Angeles and San Jose, where they're between seven and eight times uh, median family homes are seven and eight times median family incomes. In Portland and Seattle, they're four times median family incomes. Whereas in Atlanta and Houston, they're still around tw twice median family incomes. Nationwide, affordability problems are found mainly in the red and orange states here, and to a limited degree in the yellow states here, but usually in the yellow states, just in some communities in those states. It's by no coincidence that it's in those states where you have statewide growth management planning, giving the state's authority to regulate how local governments do their planning. In other words, giving the states the kind of authority that Garrett suggested we should give them is exactly what causes land use uh, housing unaffordability problems in the first place. Then there are some urban areas, such as Denver uh, uh, and Minneapolis-St. Paul, that have developed local urban area uh, growth restraints, uh, even though there's no state mandate to do so. And, and those tend to be states that were yellow in the previous slide, where you have some housing affordability problems, but not as bad as others. In the states with the strongest laws, you tend to have strong urban growth boundaries. This is the Portland area. The urban growth boundary covers 24 cities and parts of three counties. Outside the boundary, you're not allowed to build a house on your own land unless you own at least 80 acres, you actually farm it, and you actually earned forty dollars to $80,000 a year farming it in two of the last three years. And the forty dollars to $80,000 depends on the soil productivity of your land. So uh, the, the fact is one out of uh, four, five out of six Oregon farmers would not be allowed to build a house on their own land if they didn't already have one by the time this rule was put into place. Uh, California's urban growth boundaries are even stricter, if you can imagine, even stricter than Oregon's. They were set in the 1970s, and since then, California courts have dictated that you're not allowed to move an urban growth boundary without writing an environmental impact report, which costs millions of dollars. And so no city will ever bother to write the environmental impact report. This is land that's inside the city limits of the city of San Jose, but it's outside San Jose's urban growth boundary. The landowners spent $13 million writing an environmental impact report, and they still got denied uh, the approval to move the urban growth boundary 
to be able to develop that land. So those urban growth boundaries are fixed forever uh, because nobody is willing to pay the money to, and, and so on to change them. The result is a tremendous difference in, in housing costs. This is a median home in Oklahoma City, which is actually a pretty fast-growing city. This is actually a brand new home you can buy today for $148,000, 1,400 square feet, 6,000 square foot lot. Palo Alto, the same median home, which is actually a little bit smaller on a smaller size lot, and this particular home is 40 years old instead of brand new, $2.5 million. And that's because Palo Alto is surrounded by either other cities or an urban growth boundary that limits the development uh, in San Mateo and Santa Cruz or Santa Clara counties. One effect of this is a slowing of population growth. The, uh, the cities with the strictest land use rules are growing the slowest, or the urban areas. These are urban areas, not cities. Uh, the cities with the moderate land use rules are growing faster. The cities with the least are growing the fastest. Emily already mentioned this research that said that we could increase our uh, uh, U.S. GDP by 9.5% simply by taking away the regulations from three cities. What if we took away the regulations from all the cities that have them, which would house about 45% of our people? We'd have a huge increase in GDP. Another problem that this causes is that it makes housing prices more volatile. Uh, we used to have, live in a world where housing prices were not volatile at all. And since we've added these regulations, those communities that have them have housing bubbles, they burst, they collapse, and then they're bu bubbling again. Notice some of the cities today, even after adjusting for inflation, housing prices have already grown higher than they were at the peak of the last housing bubble. They're going to collapse again, and since uh, American housing is worth about $30 trillion, it's the largest asset class in the world, uh, when we have housing bubbles that burst, it has an impact on the world economy, as we learned in 2008. We only have housing bubbles where we have growth constraints. This is what housing prices look like in uh, cities that don't have these growth constraints. And you see there's almost no variation in housing prices. The main variations you see are due to changes in incomes. As incomes rise, housing prices rise because people buy, build better and newer houses. Another big impact is on home ownership rates. Our home ownership rate crested at about 69% in 2004. It since has declined to less than 63%. Uh, doesn't sound like a huge change. But home ownership is very valuable for many people. It helps people start small businesses. It helps people put kids through college. Uh, it provides uh, a better environment for learning. So children who live in homes that are owned, who are in the same economic class as other children, do better than ch children in the same e economic class who live in homes that are rented. We used to, 100 years ago, America had the highest home ownership rates in the world. Today, we're in the middle. We're at the average level. And home ownership rate, as you can see, has nothing to do with uh, per capita income. Countries that are heavily regulated, like Germany and Switzerland, may have high per capita incomes but low home ownership rates. Countries that are lightly regulated but have low per capita incomes, like Mexico and Brazil, can have much higher home ownership rates. The United States, if we look at Looked at it state by state, many American states that have less, less land use regulation have homeownership rates approaching 75%, and I think that that's what we would have today 
if we didn't have these growth constraints. Another problem relates to income inequality. Uh, Thomas Piketty wrote this famous book saying that uh, the returns to capital are growing faster than economic growth in general, and so therefore wealth must be concentrated in the hands of capitalists. And so therefore wealth inequality was becoming a serious problem and we needed government, government intervention to, to fix it. Well, an economist at MIT named Matthew Ronley took a look at his data and he separated out wealth by asset class. And he found out, guess what? The growth in the value of stocks is not faster than economic growth. The growth in the value of bonds is not e growing faster than economic growth. What the, the single asset class he could find that was growing faster than economic growth was housing. Why was housing growing faster? Because many developed countries have enacted strict land use regulations that are pushing up housing prices. And as I say, it's an example of urban elites declaring war on the working class. Our income inequality bottomed out in about 1968. And it's been growing since then. And I would argue it's been growing because of this warfare on uh, the working class. Uh, middle class, upper middle class people are just trying to keep working class people out of their neighborhoods. And so they're driving up housing prices and trying to force middle class, working class people into rental housing. Now cities are responding to this by, uh, first of all, applying aff affordable housing tools for low income people. They're building affordable housing. This is some affordable housing built in Portland. Uh, they're making these units, condo units, available to low-income people. If you earn less than $41,000, you can buy a condo for $164,000. The first thing to note is that's a, a valued income ratio of 4 to 1, which means it's going to be hard for somebody earning $41,000 to pay off a mortgage on a $164,000 place. The second thing to note is for $164,000, you get a 387-square-foot condo. That's $425 a square foot. That's not affordable housing, and yet that's subsidized affordable housing in Portland. Uh, another thing they do is inclusionary zoning. Uh, Garrett mentioned this. Inclusionary zoning is where you say to developers, okay, you build 100 homes, you have to dedicate 20% of them to low-income people at below market rates. Well, that means that the developers respond in two ways. First, they build fewer homes, and second, they charge more for the market rate homes, which brings housing affordability levels down for everybody except for the lucky ones who managed to get one of those uh, affordable units. Rent control is the same thing. Everybody, uh, every economist, 93% of economists agree, rent control makes housing less affordable, not more affordable. Now we come to the White House uh, white paper, Housing Development Toolkit, that Garrett mentioned. Um, their idea is the solution is to build up. The solution is to get denser and the problem with that is that most American cities don't have housing affordability problems. Most American cities have zoning. Every big American city except Houston has zoning, and yet they don't have housing affordability problems. So building up in those cities is not going to make any difference. Uh, the problems are found in the cities that have growth constraints. And so we see these cities building high-rises, we see them building mid-rises, and they don't solve the housing affordability problem. Why? Well, first of all, mid-rise housing costs about 30% more per square foot. High-rise housing costs about 50% more per square foot than low-rise housing. So building uh, denser actually makes housing more expensive per square foot. Second of all, 
uh, land prices in growth-constrained uh, cities or urban areas tends to be about 25 to 50 times greater per acre than in unconstrained cities. So you have to have 25 to 50 times the density to be able to bring the land cost per housing unit down to the cost in a, in a single of a single family home in an unconstrained city. Third, once you start driving up land and housing prices, uh, the labor costs go up too because it costs more to hire somebody to build your house if, they, if, if you have to pay them enough so that they can afford to live in the city that they're building the house in. Labor costs in San Jose, for example, are 40% higher for home construction workers than in Dallas or Houston. Finally, cities that have growth constraints tend to be the ones that have long approval processes because they know you can't go anywhere else. You're not allowed to leave the city because of the urban growth boundaries, and so they can afford to delay you five to 10 years before you get your permit. In Houston, you can buy a lot, uh, get permits, build on it, and move in within 120 days of when you bought the lot. In California, you're lucky to do it in six years. And so for all of these reasons, denser communities tend to be less affordable than less dense communities. And we can look at various cities around the country that have increased their density. We can see the density increase, which is shown in, in blue, has been uh, quite significant, about a 65% increase in density in San Francisco, Oakland, and uh, the value-to-income ratio has about quadrupled. In Los Angeles, the same, about a 30% density increase, value-to-income ratio has tripled. Portland, about a 20% density increase, value-to-income ratio has more than doubled. So increasing density leads to increasing housing prices, not more affordability. Now, the Supreme Court recently ruled in a case that said, uh, if land use rules make housing more expensive, uh, they violate the Fair Housing Act. So we don't have to go to communities and say, we need to convince your decision makers to uh, deregulate. We just need to say, does your community uh, harm low-income minorities? Does, does your land use regulations harm low-income minorities? In San Francisco, I considered San Francisco to be the most racist urban area in America because the population of the region has grown by 10% between 2000 and 2010. The population of blacks in the region declined by 14%. Honolulu, Los Angeles, many of these other places with strict land use constraints, they're losing black populations. Honolulu is losing native Hawaiian populations because they can't afford to live there because of these rules. And under the the uh, uh, Supreme Court's rules, that means they're violating the Fair Housing Act, and they have to open up those urban growth boundaries and allow development to take place uh, on undeveloped land. Thank you very much. Thank you each for your comments. This is turning out to be just as interesting as I'd hoped. Um, now we're going to move into a Q&A. I will kick us off since I have moderator's privilege as moderator. So this is a question for all of our panelists. I think we all agree on this panel that affordability is an important objective for housing policy. But we all have different solutions. So my question for each of you is, what are other objectives of po housing policy? I know Randall mentioned that property rights are very important. What are some of the other things that we care about, starting with Garrett and moving down? 
Well, uh, I did mention, I think, at the end of my talk that, that uh, neighborhoods are critically important uh, and the neighborhoods in which people live uh, have important influences throughout their lives. So among the goals of housing policy, I think, needs to assure that low-income people have access to high-opportunity areas. I would agree with what Garrett uh, said during his talk is that many of these regulations have benefits as well as costs. But if we look at um, cities that were developed under a relatively free market, say lower Manhattan when it was originally built out, we see that the market can take care of a lot of the goals that regulations purport to achieve. So uh, when we think about the need to um, have space for transportation or what have you, the market uh, and land prices really did a good job of providing what regulations say they're going to achieve today. I think there's been a lot of debate about whether homeownership is, a, is an important policy goal for government, and I would argue that it is, and that the best way a government can achieve that goal is by getting out of the way. But Hernando de Soto's book, The Mystery of Capital, showed that areas that have high property ownership rates are do much better off than areas that have low property ownership rates. Researchers, by American researchers, have found that, as I mentioned, children in homes that uh, are owned do better than children of the same economic class in homes that are not owned, that are rented. So there's a lot of benefits to home ownership. Without home ownership, uh, it's likely that uh, Steve Jobs had never been able to start uh, uh, Apple. Uh, other companies started because they were able. To, the, their, the founders were able to borrow money against the equity in their homes to uh, uh, to establish the business. Very good. Okay, so one last question. Um, full disclosure, I'm kind of a all of the above type of girl. I'm inclined to think that housing supply is housing supply wherever it's located, and that brings prices down. So a question for Garrett and for Randall, which is, are there places where your strategy that you've proposed, which is smart growth, or maybe it's building at the urban fringe, are there places where that doesn't actually make sense? Are there exceptions to the rule, in other words? And surely there are. Uh, I'm not sure I understand the question. Are there places where maybe building affordable housing or building up at the urban core doesn't actually make sense if the objective is trying to lower housing prices? Well, there is a market logic to this, right? The uh, home builders look at the relative costs of land and improvements and make decisions about the density based on those relative prices. In places where, where the density but it meets the conditions of developers, it doesn't make sense, right? That's why the question, the way it was posed, I found rather difficult to answer, right? Is the question is, do we grow up or do we grow out? To, to what extent is that really our decision, right? Uh, or do you want to try to get, in, get out of the way uh, and let the market make these decisions? So I, I think there are cases in which the market is operating just fine and the density and the other land use constraints are not binding, right? And so in that case, it's not going to make a whole lot of difference. Well, Garrett said during his presentation that he didn't think there was anybody in this room who thought that if we got rid of all the regulations that our cities would be less dense. Well, I'm one. Uh, I think our cities would be a lot less dense if we got rid of the, uh, these regulations because I think most people, not everybody, but most people prefer to live in a low-density area. I'm willing to be proven wrong. Uh, I'm willing to get rid of all land use regulations. Uh, I like the Houston model, which has no zoning. Uh, counties in Texas are not allowed to zone. 
I'd be willing to get rid of all zoning and, and go to a, a model that Houston has, which is a lot of people rely on protective covenants and, and deed restrictions instead of zoning. Uh, but not, not everybody does that. There are a lot of neighborhoods in Houston that don't have any such deed restrictions. And then see what happens. If we uh, got rid of all the regulations and then see, do people want to live in density? Then they can find some density. The, the market will build it for them. Do people want to live in low density? Then they can find low density. The problem is that we have had a panic over urban sprawl that I think is needless. And because of that panic, we've seen city after city and state after state pass rules that have made housing more expensive out of a, a, a fallacious need to preserve farmland when we actually have uh, far more farmland than we, than we need in this country. Okay, now I'm going to move to audience questions. If you have a question, please raise your hand. I will call on you. Please keep your questions short, so two sentences or less, and end them with a question mark. We'll start on the right here on the second row. Thank you. Um, I am a renter. I've always been a renter, undergraduate school, University of Maryland. I have to totally disagree with Mr. O'Toole about um, everyone should be living in a home or a house because they can't afford it. So now that we've defined affordable housing based on the AMI and wherever you live, I'm in Northern Virginia, you haven't even talked about housing costs or rentals in Northern Virginia and on up. How, please answer, I could be Mr. Knapp, um, Mr. O'Toole, I know where you stand on this, but zoning regulations and renters pay taxes. We contribute to the economy. Home ownership, do you think home ownership is still a goal of today when most people, because people are moving into cities, causing dens density, causing more transportation, what have you. That means growth to the economy of that particular city. I don't want to, I know Portland, I know Seattle, I've lived there, I've just moved back from Raleigh. So what is wrong with being a renter? Well, there's nothing wrong with being a renter. I said that uh, government should encourage home ownership by getting out of the way and letting people buy a home if they want to. Uh, the problem is that uh, I think our natural rate of home ownership is around 75%, and there are many countries in the world where home ownership rates are 85% or more. Uh, and we have government getting in the way and preventing home ownership, actually depressing home ownership. Uh, and making it so that people have to be renters when they would prefer to be homeowners. Now, you might prefer to be a renter, and I don't quarrel with your preference. I just quarrel with government policies that make it hard for people to buy homes if they want to. Well, as I say, Brazil has a 85% home ownership rate, and they have a per capita income about 20% of ours. So it's not income that's the problem. In 120 years ago, home ownership rates were higher among low-skilled working-class families in, in American cities than they were among middle-class families. So it's not income-related. It's based on desire. And if government doesn't get in the way, people of all incomes can choose to own a home if they want to. Okay, let's move to the next question. Here on the left. And remember that the folks in the audience who are live streaming cannot hear you if you're not speaking into a mic. Great. I've lived in um, Paris, 
and visited Vancouver. Um, I've often said that if you put ink on the bottom of your feet and walked through your house, you'd find there were very few footprints in the house. They'd be in the kitchen, the bedroom, bathroom, not, not much else. Both of those cities have cores with very small housing permitted, typically 300, 275 square feet, and people enjoy that and have a, a very good street life to match it. I haven't heard discussion about making housing smaller that's still comfortable in order to achieve affordability. Well, I would say that cities first make housing expensive, and then they say, well, the solution is you should live in a tiny house. And I think that's the wrong way to go. If somebody wants to live in a 300 or 600 square foot house, that's up to them. But the cities shouldn't make housing more expensive in order to force people to make that choice. And that's what I'm seeing happen. I'm seeing cities around the country saying, okay, we're going to approve the construction of 300 square foot homes. Uh, or Portland actually subsidizing the construction of 387 square foot homes. But that's not what people would choose. If you had a choice between a, a 2,000 square foot home for $150,000 versus a 600 square foot home for $400,000 or $500,000, which would you choose? You would choose the bigger home for the lower price. But we're not being given those kind of choices. We're being told you can have a, a big house for a million dollars or a little teeny house for $200,000. That's not right. Would Emily or Garrett like to weigh in? It is partly a generational thing, right? So the housing preferences of our generation, uh, if you'll permit, right, are not the same as the housing preferences of the next generation. So to presume that everybody wants to live in a 2,000 square foot home in a suburb, I, I think is a false presumption. Right? That's not to say you shouldn't allow people to do that. And I think when the, when the millennials and, the, and Gen X uh, cohort starts to have kids, that they may, they may change their housing preferences. Uh, but it's not a given that everybody wants to live in a 2,000 square foot house in the, in the, in the suburbs. Even before they have kids, most millennials live in suburbs today. More far more millennials live in suburbs than live in city centers. Well, that's because of the regulations in the central cities is forcing them to do that. As Randall said, <laughs> some cities are experimenting with uh, micro units or tiny houses and allowing a very limited number of those to be built. But at the same time, most cities have minimum unit size requirements that make it illegal to build a tiny apartment or house. So I think that we should certainly allow people to live in a small apartment if that's what they prefer for themselves. Okay, another question here on the second row. Since urban development has such a huge impact on the lives of citizens, do you think that local governments should have a more interactive dialogue with their citizens before they actually make a decision on how that city is going to grow? Uh, I, I, that's a two-edged sword, right? <laughs> so we teach public participation and public engagement is an important part of the planning process. Um, that can work both ways. Right? It, it can work to, to serve the majority and, and, and diminish regulations and, and make things serve the constituents better, or it can work quite the opposite way. Right. So you know, we teach, and I think we will continue to teach, the principle that you ought to engage in the public in conversations about these things. Uh, but it's not obvious clear that it's going to get the answer that you want when you do that. 
one person who's not represented at all in current uh, housing debates is someone who would like to move to a city but can't because the costs are too high. So I think that allowing too much community participation in determining land use outcomes blocks those people from having a voice at all. My answer is that cities shouldn't decide how they should grow in the first place, and if they aren't making that decision, they won't be needing any public participation. In Oregon and California and some other states, no one is allowed to build on their own land anything at all without the permission of everybody else in the state. Any person in the state can block your development, and that's, what's made how, that's one of the things that's made housing so expensive. So... Uh, uh, opening it up to public participation makes it worse, not better. As P.J. O'Rourke says, uh, you know, democracy is wonderful, but can, like family, it can also make you wish you were dead. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we've got a question here in the blue, the middle. Hi, uh, Jonathan Coppedge, R Street Institute. We've talked a lot about local restrictions here uh, for good reason, because that's where a lot of the rubber hits the road. But um, housing is also one of the sectors of the economy in which you know those of us here in Washington, D.C. are integrally involved. And I'm particularly interested in um, uh, Mr. O'Toole's reaction to to the influence of the uh, mortgage interest tax deduction and how that, you know, instead of just getting government out of the way to um, weigh in one way or another, may in fact be significantly influencing decisions of how people live. Most of the research shows that the mortgage interest tax deduction, as well as the other federal policies like uh, FHA guaranteed loans and uh, the existence of Ginny May, uh, Fannie Mae, and Freddie Mac, uh, those things really have almost no impact on housing uh, homeownership rates, maybe a 2 or 3% impact. But most countries in the world don't have any of those institutions. Many countries have much higher homeownership rates. Australia, for example, does not have a mortgage interest deduction or any of the other institutions. They have a higher home ownership rate, and the average size of home being built in Australia is larger than the average size of home being built in the United States. So I don't think we need those things. Uh, I'd be ha perfectly happy to get rid of them. All right, right here in the front. Thank you. Question for um, Mr. O'Toole. You mentioned uh, homeowner covenants and deed restrictions, and I'm curious why uh, you're amenable to those when one can imagine them sort of metastasizing over large enough communities to essentially duplicate what's being done by towns and cities uh, at the governmental level. Because if, if you can bind future homeowners who purchase your home, you're effectively doing what government does. Well, first of all, I trust my neighbors more than I trust a downtown urban planner who may live miles and miles away from my neighborhood uh, to decide the future of my neighborhood. Second of all, uh, in Houston, you have a remarkable wide range of choices. You can decide to move into a neighborhood that has no protective covenants or restrictions at all. Uh, and then you might have a high-rise being built next to your home. You can decide to move in a neighborhood that has minimal restrictions. You know, it might say uh, no high-rises. It might say, uh, uh, you know, 
have to keep your lawn trimmed, and that's about it. And then you can move into a neighborhood that has really strict covenants that say you have to, you, know, you can't park a motorhome in your front yard, you can't uh, uh, do all kinds, you have to paint your house only certain colors and all kinds of other things. So that gives you a choice. And uh, that wide range of choices available to people in Houston because it's all very affordable. Housing there is uh, pretty cheap compared to just about everywhere else in the country. So I don't find those restrictions to be onerous. And I, as I say, I do trust my neighbors a lot more than I trust some distant urban planner. All right, back in the middle, blue suit. Just everyone in here. Uh, hi, I'm Jung Hwang from Cato Institute. Um, well, I'm from South Korea, and I do agree to Mr. Hotel's uh, statement because we have the highest uh, housing price, and even though we grew up, we still have the highest pricing. But I have a question regarding the geographic um, variables that have on housing price because Hong Kong and South Korea have very small territory. So what are the effects that geographic ge geographics have in housing prices. There's very few places in the world other than a few city-states, and, and you could call Hong Kong a city-state because it was uh, separate from China for so long, uh, Singapore, uh, and a couple others, and Bangladesh. Uh, Bangladesh is the only country I know that's uh, very large that has uh, so many people that uh, it doesn't have room for more people. Uh, other than that, uh, there's very few places I know that have a shortage of land. Emily mentioned Los Angeles being built out. I looked it up. Los Angeles County is 65% rural open space. Ventura County, which is part of the Los Angeles urban area, is 87% rural open space. Orange County, which is part of the Los Angeles urban area, is only 35% rural open space. That's a lot of rural open space. Uh, so we look at places, we look at Honolulu, uh, we think it's built out, but it, 36% is, is uh, developed, 64% is rural open space. There's rural open space just about every major city in the world, and Hong Kong might be one of the exceptions. But uh, now that it's part of China, I think if you can go into China, there's room for more growth there. Did you want to chime in, Gary well, or I wanna, Emily? I, I'd like to agree. Um, that, that, that build-out is a regulatory concept uh, for the most part. Um, and so I think there is indeed potential for much more development uh, for growing up. Um, I think the example in, in, um, in Palo Alto, for example, was really much less a function of the growth boundaries in the region than a function of the, the, the restrictions on redevelopment and, and the height restrictions and the density restrictions in Palo Alto. So while I agree on the one sense that, that you know, uh, build-out is a regulatory um, concept, uh, how you expand the capacity within any, any footprint it can be a combination of allowing for greater densities uh, and allowing for expansion of the fringe. Uh, Tokyo provides an example of a city that's managed to maintain housing affordability while primarily uh, growing up rather than out by making it easy to get approvals to build new housing and by making that sort of density 
legal. Uh, within North America, we can look at Chicago and Toronto as cities that have maintained um, not necessarily a level that we would think is affordable enough, but have been relatively more affordable than a lot of the coastal cities that have real challenges. Take a couple more here on the third row in the middle. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I would guess that housing prices are set by the market. And in cases like you showed for Los Angeles, where the price of a uh, median house, I think, was seven times the income, how can it maintain that? Who can afford it? And even if they can afford it, who do they buy it from? And what does the person do with the money after he gets it? Well, the first thing that happens is that some people who own their homes before the regulations are put into effect get windfall uh, wealth increases. And so their incomes might not be able to afford the value of their house, but since they paid for their house or bought their house before the prices went up, they're affording it. The second thing that happens is that you get an out-migration of low-income people and eventually a middle-income people. Uh, and so you end up with, uh, uh, as uh, uh, Edward Glaser said, a boutique city uh, for, oh, for serving only the elite. And that's what we're seeing in both Los Angeles and San Francisco. I use blacks as a bellwether because uh, their incomes are 60% of whites, and uh, uh, they're moving out in numbers of, of those cities. Um, it has, he's saying the Los Angeles metropolitan area has 10 million people. That's true. But as I say, a lot of them owned their homes before these regulations made housing unaffordable. A lot of people, uh, you know, five, six years ago, you were able to, well, 10 years ago, you were able to buy a house uh, and dedicate 55% of your income to it. Now the uh, mortgage restrictions are a little stricter today. Uh, so you could buy a house that was more than we today would consider affordable. And so people were buying those houses. But a big problem is that housing, the, the housing price volatility makes it much riskier to buy a house. And so we ended up with a lot of defaults because housing prices went down and the banks were hurt because they couldn't turn around and resell the house uh, because the price was so much lower than uh, the people owed on it. Okay, back here on the right of the aisle, on the left-hand side of the auditorium. This entire talk, you've talked about uh, supply side, um, but you haven't mentioned at all decreasing the cost of adding more supply, so specifically construction or any sorts of uh, ways you could deal with that. I was hoping you guys could possibly speak to that or at least mention anything you've looked at. I know from the National Home Builders, they've talked about how over last cycle, the average cost of regulation was between 18 to 20 percent of each individual home. Now that's up, depending on the market, between 28 and 32 percent cycle over cycle. So just trying to figure out if you guys had looked at that at all and how that would play into increasing the affordability thus of housing. So Randall mentioned that uh, as, as housing gets taller, it gets more expensive to build. And there are a couple of jumps. So there's a jump from a single-family home to anything that's multifamily. There's a jump uh, when we get to mid-rise and then a jump at high-rise. So it's important to make this development viable to allow developers to take advantage of the land that they are purchasing 
to build uh, what they think will serve the market best. So if we allow uh, mid-rise construction, but just barely, they're not going to be able to take advantage of that increased uh, permit. Oh, material costs. Oh, I don't know anything about that. Sorry. Well, I don't either. <laughs> I, I have looked at that, and you know, basically, house building a house requires land, it requires labor, and it requires the materials. And uh, in the absence of government regulation, transportation is cheap enough that we can move materials around anywhere in the country, and they cost about the same, uh, no matter where you are, except for Alaska and Hawaii. Uh, in the absence of government regulation, labor is about the same cost everywhere. And in the absence of government regulation, land is cheap just about everywhere. Uh, it's more expensive in the city centers, but it's cheap at the periphery of, of just about every city. And 50 years ago, uh, value to income ratios was the, about the same in cities all across the country except Honolulu, except uh, Hawaii. So. Uh, it's the regulation that has made housing more expensive in some places than others, and we can track just how much of that difference is due to the, the increased land cost, how much is due to the permitting cost, and how much is due to the increased labor cost. Uh, and and, and it, that has been done comparing, for example, San Jose with, with Dallas, which has zoning uh, but doesn't have these kind of growth constraints. Okay, we're going to break with tradition for a moment and let Garrett, uh, Garrett a panelist, ask a question. So, Thanks. Garrett. Well, so much of the conversation here, and I think most of the people in the room agree that regulations are, are increasing housing costs. So the real question then, it seems, is how do we either eliminate, which I don't think is likely, uh, how do we improve the regulations? And, and simply to come out of sessions like this or to speak in the ivory tower and say, oh, we need to lower regulations is not a strategy. What is the mechanism right, by which we can reduce the regulatory burden on, on affordable housing? My mechanism is for the next administration to uh, reevaluate the um, affirmatively furthering fair housing policy and saying, hey, housing is unaffordable in cities that have growth constraints, whether they're growth constraints because of urban growth boundaries or because of uh, uh, other limits. Uh, and those growth constraints are causing hardships for low-income minorities, and so we're going to challenge those cities under the Fair Housing Act. And if the administration does it, the Supreme Court has said they'll back them up in a five-to-four decision. I don't see that changing, uh, and I see uh, that being a way of overcoming the democratic obstacles which are created because most people in a city own their own homes and they don't want to have the windfall losses that uh, take place after the windfall profits they've earned from putting in these regulations. So you favor more regulatory intervention in the local housing? Not regulatory intervention. I favor governments coming in, or the federal government coming in and saying, uh, Portland, San Francisco, Los Angeles, you have land use policies that have made housing more expensive. That has imposed a hardship on blacks and other low-income minorities. You have to get rid of those policies. You have to just eliminate those land use regulations, all of them. Emily, ideas from you? Uh, David Schleicher is a law professor who's written previously for Cato, and he has some really interesting policy proposals. 
uh, one of which is a zoning budget that states would enforce for municipalities. And they would the zoning budget would say each municipality has to allow X percent of population growth each year. And then cities have the freedom to say where they're going to allow the new housing construction to take place. Uh, but they have to allow it somewhere. Uh, and I think that's a really interesting idea for We already do that in Oregon. Change. It doesn't work. <laughs> Every city in the Portland area has a firm population target it has to meet by rezoning the higher densities. It hasn't worked yet. Uh, Schleicher also has a few other proposals, uh, one called a tax increment local transfer that would share part of the increased tax base that comes from uh, higher density development with nearby landowners in a sense to buy off their opposition and to make new development benefit both new residents and existing residents. Very good. One more question from the audience. Okay, right here. Uh, I, w I wanted to ask more about uh, Washington, D.C. and the D.C. metro area in particular. Can you speak up a little bit? Uh, there we go. I, I wanted to ask more about Washington, D.C. and the D.C. metro area in particular. And um, my, my thought is that since there are so many different jurisdictions within um, you know, a radius of downtown, including Maryland and Virginia. Um, it's kind of a natural laboratory because the different jurisdictions probably do have different regulations. So there might be some way in which to observe that um, housing prices locally varied based on um, uh, regulations locally. That's my hypothesis. I wondered if you could comment. Well, um Washington, D.C., this region is a very complex region, as you well know, um, and we do have multiple jurisdictions, but actually in terms of the total number of jurisdictions, we have fewer than many other metropolitan areas, right? Um, and then even in, in, in the state of Maryland, for example, you contrast Montgomery County and Prince George's County, I mean, tremendous difference in housing prices and everything else. Can you attribute that to the, the regulatory regime? I don't, I don't really think so. Um, and I think where the regulatory burdens are lower, which tends to be in Northern Virginia, you don't see greater housing prices. So these are, you know, only anecdotal points. Um, but I don't think they lead you to the conclusion necessarily that, um, th that the, the Washington metropolitan region provides, you know, new insights into to the extent to which regulations affect housing prices. Well, I would not surprisingly feel differently. Uh, Montgomery County is about one-third urbanized. About one-third of the land in Montgomery County has been put into er agricultural reserves, which means you can't build on it. And another third has been put into conservation easements, which means you can't build on it. That's made that county very, very expensive. Uh, as Garrett said, Prince George's County is cheaper because it doesn't have those kind of things. On the Virginia side, you've got Loudoun County, which has lots of land that they've all zoned to be 20-acre minimum lot size which means only the very wealthy can build houses there. Uh, and that is limited development on the Virginia side. So you end up with uh, uh, restrictions on both sides of, the, of Washington, D.C., and has put Washington, D.C. in kind of a, a vice grip and, and created high housing prices here. If, if we relax those kinds of zones, zoning systems in Loudoun County and Montgomery County, uh, Washington, D.C. would become more affordable too. Okay, great. Thank you, everyone. Um, a little announcement before we all break. There's going to be lunch upstairs on the second floor, so please join us there. Um, and restrooms are on the second floor as well. If you need to find them, they are there. Thank you to each of our panelists. Let's give them a warm uh, round of applause. <laughs>